saying, to be fair, I, I agree, but where does a robot fit into Tesla's <laughs> product line in the EV space? I mean, you, you got me there. They're, they're not necessarily known for sticking to their core competencies. <laughs> Hi, guys. Welcome back to Intern Investing. It's me, Connor, with Zane and Jamie, as always. Um, and we're talking about some valuation dispersion in the overall market for our first topic. We've got what, four or five topics to go through today. Um, very wide variety as we typically do every single week. Um, but I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on, uh, on this first topic here. So this chart that I'm talking about, um, is, is from JP Morgan's guide to the markets. They produce this timely report, um, sometime around this time every year. Uh, I think every quarter where they, they, give out a, a guide to the markets. And it's especially timely considering, you know, how volatile things are right now. I think the S and is up over 5% in the last two days. And then it was down 5% the previous two days. So things a little bit crazy, but this chart that I'm looking at right here is showing the dispersion between the 20th and the 80th percentile of S and P 500 stock. So it's showing just price to earnings valuations between the top level and the bottom level of the index. And what you see, which I think is worth noting here, is seeing the dispersion, the, the deviation between the, the, dot, the, the top and the bottom shows you when some stocks can just start to run away with valuations just a little bit too high, where you see some of the bottom stocks lagging and then those top uh, top quartile of, of valuations just get worse and the deviation just gets wider and wider and wider. And then you have a, a compression. And this happened in the early 2000s and this happened in 2021. And so I, I don't know. I just think it's interesting to look at when you see that deviation, you can see that that shift that's happening in the market. Yeah, and you can you can see pretty clearly in this chart that the that the spread um, the the deviation between the top and the bottom is uh, pretty pretty quickly uh, getting closer, and the, that that variance is uh, declining very uh, very quickly. And like you said, we saw that in uh, in in what looks like two thousand one, it spread out, and then extremely quickly it pulled back in um, a, a little bit. So it's it's definitely an interesting chart. I'm not sure how much. Um, how much of a forward indicator it is uh, if you're trying to glean any insight from it other than the fact that um, yeah it's it's pretty safe to say that we were in kind of a crazy um, high hyper bull market last last year because valuations were uh, so excessive I mean that that makes um, that that makes sense um, but it, it, it is interesting to um, to kind of see that and thankfully these uh, the the spread between valuations are, are pulling in uh, now, which is a good thing, signaling that we're, you know, at least headed in the, the right direction, although maybe the stock prices are heading in a bad direction. But yeah, when you're looking at the the variance in valuations between the top quartile and the bottom quartile between S&P 500 stocks, you're not going to have the bottom dragging the median lower. You're always going to have the top quartile dragging the median higher. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is I think for the most part, since the average or the, the, the median S&P 500 uh, price to earnings ratio over the last 25 years is 16, you're not going to have the majority of the index pulling that down. I think what happens more often than not is that you have the, 
the higher valuations that pulls that up. So if you're looking just to zoom out and look at the markets from a valuation standpoint, I think this chart is is really helpful because you can see when those valuations start to run away. But there's another part from from this presentation too uh, that shows the performance since the market low in March of 2020. And so this is taking into account all of 2021 where we had the crypto craze, the growth stock craze, all of that. Uh, and what you would think was even with the, the most recent market downturn, that growth specifically would have outperformed. I would have, st- even though this downturn has been significant, I would have still thought that growth would, would have performed the, mo- the, the best since March of 2020. That's not the case. It's, been, it's not the case at all. Uh, you've got value, you've got a blend of growth and value, and then you've got growth specifically. That is, and then you've got large cap mid cap and small cap. That's what this chart is showing. The best performer is small cap value, which would have, that's ex- not what would no, you have expected I, I, I wouldn't have, ex- I don't think anybody would have expected that. If anything, it would have been large cap value or something like that. What, what even is a small cap value stock? Like, I, I don't even know what that would entail. A, a, a like a billion <laughs> dollar company. That's a value play that you can't find any of those on the market. Can you? I mean, I think Pubmatic is somewhat of a small cap value company. I think they're a little bit out of the range. What's their market cap now? Uh, no, they're idea? they're close. They're pushing on a billion. They were they were on, sub okay. they, they were sub be. they were sub a billion uh, a few months ago. So yeah, I, I mean, I think they could definitely fit into that category. Hmm. Um, but as far as how they determine value versus growth, I'm not sure. But yeah. if you're if you're, I, I assume that this is not somebody going out in into a giant list of all of the, the stocks in the S&P 500 and picking which one is value and which one is growth. I'm sure there's some quantitative measures that are picking out which ones are value and which ones are growth and which is a blend of each. And I'm just, I'm very surprised that small cap value uh, has outperformed the way that it has. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull up a, um, a Y chart just to back up my work to make sure I have this right. But I was really surprised, not necessarily that small cap um, uh, val- or, yeah, small cap value was outperforming, um, but that growth was underperforming by such a wide margin. I mean, small cap growth was uh, something only like fifty percent uh, or fifty one percent growth from the from the March twenty twenty lows. Compare that to um, blend, which was in the seventy percent range. Uh, value uh, all, all market caps was even higher. But um, then I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, we've seen a lot of these tech companies fall. Um, you know, 70, 80, 90, over 90% Peloton is down over 90%. Redfin, I think, is uh, over 90% as well. And all of these are deemed growth stocks, and some of them likely won't come back. And, yeah, they might have, um, you know, started started rocketing higher. Um, but these have, you know, fallen back not only to um, in, to um, March 2020 levels, but before that i mean look even even stalwarts like netflix <clears throat> over the past 3 years it's down 10% year over year it is it has decreased in value not to that's not to mention from or that's basically from um from march lows uh, a little before but you know or that's uh 
excuse me, that's that's at, before March uh, 2020 lows. So uh, if you're taking March 2020 lows, it's likely uh, down even more from that. Same thing with Shopify. Shopify is down 3% uh, over the past three years. So it's surprising to see growth down this much. But when you really think about it and find these companies where it's not uncommon to have stocks down 70, 80, 90%, but also these large cap stalwarts that saw incredible growth in 2020 and 2021, and now they're way below those 2020 lows i'm not, i can't say i'm terribly surprised yeah I, I i'm honestly surprised by the performance all around uh where, where you have small cap growth is still up 51 percent since the bottom of march 2020 that's that's surprising <laughs> yeah, to me I'll, I'll say my portfolio is mostly small small cap and mid cap growth I'm not up 50 to 60% uh, since since March 2020. So, I mean, yeah. seeing, seeing that, I mean, I kind of wish I was that. But, you know, hey. Now, I went and so I ran this screen, and I think this, this kind of ties into this topic. So I'll, I'll move, I'll insert this topic right here. Um, but I, I, I went and built out a model portfolio in Y charts. And what it was able to give me or what I was able to do is basically screen for the highest growth stocks and rebalance every six months with the companies that are scoring highest on revenue growth, scoring highest on um, valuation. Uh, basically you're picking all of the stocks that are, you know, a, a lot of them are in arc, those type of companies. The ones that when you're chasing growth, you're chasing, you know, top line growth. This, these are the companies that you'll find. Um, a lot of popular names are in this portfolio. And it's just performed horribly. Since, since January of 2019, this portfolio has significantly underperformed with the market. And I'm having some issues pulling up. Um, Connor, how many, how many stocks are in this, uh, are in this chart? So it's 10 that's rebalanced every six months. So you, in January of 2019, you have the 10 fastest growing companies from the last year. And then six months later in June, you have a, a rebalance that's completely flips all those stocks on their head, perhaps, or maybe they're still looking back a year. Maybe those companies are still the top 10 fastest growers. They'll stay. But if they're not, They'll get taken out, and the new ones will come in. And so that's how mm. this portfolio is built. Um, so it's constantly changing. And so the performance of this is about 20% lower than the S&P 500 since wow. January of 2019. And there was a point when it, it looks very similar to ARC, if you're looking at the chart of, <laughs> of, of, this, uh, of this portfolio, where at one point they were up over 100% of the the s p 500 this is back in 2021 so it's just come it's just come down hard just like arc has i i mean i'm not 100 percent surprised a lot of those high growth companies that are um if, if, if they're the fastest growers there's no way that um you know at least in part they're not um fueling some of that growth by borrowing money and so you know if it it also means that these high growers are likely unprofitable if they're growing that fast they're not focused on profits that was was loved two years ago but now everybody hates a company that isn't profitable and is focused on debt um to to fuel growth so you know the that that kind of combination i'm not saying all companies are like that i don't know even which companies are in this uh you know 10 stock um model 
but uh, you know, un- unprofitable and potentially using debt to fuel growth. Um, that is the exact opposite of, of a of a company that that investors like right now. So, you know what I'm really interested. Okay, I'm going to run this screen for the next week, and next week's podcast I'm going to bring this up. Um, so this is this is what I want to do. I want to take the companies, the ten companies rebalance every six months with the 10 companies that are growing the fastest top line. And then I want to make that a model portfolio. And I want to look at their valuations over the course of the last 10 years. And then I want to look at the companies that are growing cash flow the fastest, the top 10 companies rebalanced every six months. And I want to look at their valuations over the last 10 years. And I want to see if, and, and we may have to run this for the past 20 years. I don't know. I don't even know if I have those screening capabilities, but if, if I could, I would love to see the, uh, the cycles, you know, I, I think we would see some valuation cycles where the cash flow companies like right now in the current market environment, their valuations are coming up and the top line growers, you know, the fast high growth companies, their valuations are coming down and you might just be able to see those overlap over the years and see those cycles. It'd be interesting to view. I would I wouldn't be so sure about that, Connor. I mean, there are a lot of companies that are growing cash flows at a fast rate. That just because they're in the wrong sector, they operate in the wrong sector, their stocks are getting absolutely hammered. Datadog is the company that comes to mind when I talk about that. They've been growing their free cash flow consistently. I think one of the past few quarters they grew cash flow at at three hundred percent year over year and the consistent triple digit cash flows because they're just starting to scale up their um, their cash flow growth so um, that that might be part of the reason why it's so fast right now yet the the company's been absolutely tanking so um, I, I I, w- I also would love to see that. I think I would actually be looking for different um, things, however. I think that the stocks would definitely be falling, um, or you know, many of the stocks would be falling um, during down periods, but it just might be um, less, um, less, less bad. It would be less volatile. Um, and then some of these companies might actually uh, you know, come out better on the other side. And after these downturns, we see multiples shoot higher before returning to a steady state increase because of how well they performed. Um, and then investors are kind of rewarding that as we come out of the tunnel. So that would be my prediction as to what would happen, but I, it would be really interesting to see those graphs and, and uh, overlay them as well. Yeah, I just love to see where the money is going. And you could probably do yeah. that a lot easier in looking at a value fund and a growth fund and looking at inflows and outflows of those funds <laughs> and not having to run this whole screen. Um, but but we're, we, that, we just want to do it the hard way, Connor. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So what we got next? Jamie, did you put this in about Mercado Libre for topic two? I did, and it's less about Mercado Libre. Um, so there, there was a study from Fidelity. Um, it was, it was diving into Latin American e-commerce and the growth rates in that area, and then it kind of honed in on Mercado Libre. And um, one of these graphs, it, it was barely mentioning um, the. the what I want to focus in on here it was merely just a passing glance, but it analyzed Mercado Libre's performance in rising yield environments. So from 2016 to about midway through 2018, rates were rising, um, and tw- midway 2012 to the beginning of 2014, rates were rising. And during both of those times, um, Mercado Libre stock actually went up. 
Uh, and while it wasn't as uh, as as high as uh, the U.S. ten-year uh, uh, yields were um, during that time, they were both pretty consistently going up in the right direction. And so Fidelity, um, in their report, um, it said history shows that periods of rising U.S. rates do not preclude internet-related and tech stocks from performing well. And so I sat, I sat on that, and I'm like, well, hey, now that. Is almost the exact opposite from what we're hearing right now. It seems like tech stocks uh, can do no right in a in a rising rate environment. Um, so it was a little interesting um, to you know actually uh, hear that. Uh, so I, I, I guess my question is. What's the difference this time? I mean, Mercado Libre is still succeeding; they're still thriving and taking market share specifically. Yet they are uh, their their performance has been uh, the opposite of of good during this rising rate environment. So maybe that's going to change because rates haven't stopped rising yet. Um, but I, I I guess my the the question I had was okay, why is it different this time? The only thing I can think of is that it's just the speed at which the rates are rising because that is like the defining unprecedented uh, portion of what's going on uh, in the economy right now. Like rates have risen before, but at this rate, uh, not, not really. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see what's happening with growth names. Um, but I think regardless, the greater takeaway from that is a good business is going to be good business, whether or not the interest rate is 2% or 5%. You know, I, I think a lot of times people will ask me like, you know, is this a good stock for, uh, for a high interest rate environment, I'm like, if if I'm investing in a stock, it's got to be a good company, one that I think is going to do well in low interest rate and high interest rate times. Like if if that's the thing holding me back from investing, I don't think it's worth it, you know. But it matters, you know. I used to okay, so I used to I said this on Motley Fool Live multiple times, um, where I was like. People would ask, what do you think about the economy and how it impacts your portfolio and this specific thing that's happening? And I was like, listen, there are so many different macro events that are happening, and it could be rising interest rates. It could be Russia-Ukraine war. It could be energy costs. It could be so many different things. But my takeaway was, listen, all of this is happening, and I, and and." Yeah, I'll pay attention to it, but I'm not going to worry about it because my companies are, you know, solid companies. I only invest in the best companies. But I will say I've taken a step back from that position where, yes, I want my companies to be solid in all environments, but you want to be very aware of how your company performs in a variety of different environments. For example, if you are investing in banks you have to be very aware of you know what the interest rate environment is going to be if you're investing in a company like upstart well what does cheap capital do for a company like upstart and all these different you know high growth companies that uh, that have basically built 100% revenue growth year after year on very low cost of capital and what happens when that cost of capital goes up does it affect Apple as strongly as it affects the next company in your portfolio? These are all things that you should pay attention to as an investor. And I do think that some investing decisions should be made based off of those factors. I Maybe. was in full agreement with you, Connor. I, I was in full agreement with you up until that very last sentence. I mean, I want... 
I, I, I agree with you. There's no, I don't think there's any company that is just completely immune to any macro factor because our minds can't comprehend how many different uh, you know, macro factors there could be. So obviously there's always going to be one that is negatively or positively affecting our business. We can pick the company, um, you know, in, in, in that industry that while it might be affected, uh, you know, it is a high quality business that is going to, um, you know, go beyond that and, and, and thrive during that environment. But I don't think that, you know, rising interest rates, for example, uh, or, you know, another macro factor should be impacting how we invest. I, I, I think that it may, maybe that's not what you said. And that's what just what I was interpreting. But if that's what you said, I, I disagree with that. I think it's sort of it's sort of what I said. OK, I don't think Correct it should me. change everything about the way we invest, but I think it should have an impact on the way that I invest. Um, now, I may say these things and say, listen, this in a perfect world, if I was constantly looking at my portfolio and making these changes, if I was running a fund, for example, these are things that I would probably consider as you know, a, a PM, but I'm not, I'm just running my own portfolio and I don't look at a lot of these things. And quite frankly, I don't look at my portfolio when the markets are down ever. And so, Am I acting these things out? No, but I think they're worth considering, especially if you've got, for example, and, and, and everyone's situation is so different. You know, like if I had my, if my entire portfolio in cash and I was trying to deploy that money right now, should I take into consideration some of the stuff that's going on? Yes, I think that should should be taken into consideration when I'm choosing the companies that I'm going to purchase. You know what I mean? So every situation is different. Me personally, I'm not acting on any of these macroeconomic things that are going on. I'm not acting on rising rates. But if I'm investing my money actively, I do want to be aware of those things and making those decisions. Yeah, like if, I think, if I think housing is going to have uh, a major correction – do I want to be invested in a lot of housing-related companies? Probably not. Yeah, those those macro factors should definitely um, – you should know how they affect the companies you are interested in or the companies you own 100%. But I don't think you should be acting based off of those macro factors. I could believe a recession is, is here, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to invest in digital advertising stocks because I believe that is the future and a recession is not, you know, going to be the permanent state of the U.S. economy or the global economy. Um, so I, I, th I think we're more in agreement than, uh, than, than we led on, but yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate because the disagreements are what makes good content, but I'll try to disagree more next time. Well, if you want to disagree, what did you guys think about the Tesla AI Day robot? The Optimus Tesla bot, as it's called. I have no thoughts. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have no thoughts um, except yeah. for what I've read on Twitter. That's usually how I get my thoughts on Tesla days <laughs> like that. Because I see people, I, I see the Tesla people who are like, this is incredible. They've built out this robot in three months or, you know, however long it was. And then I have the people being like, yeah, Honda made this robot 22 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I saw, uh, I, saw I don't know one, what to think. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I saw one tweet though that was like, it's funny how people 
are simultaneously arguing that this can't be done, it's impossible, and it's already been done. Someone's already done it. Like, I'm hearing both of those, and it's like, how, how can that, <laughs> that be <is> true? true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, I think... Zane, tell us a little more about... Tell us a little more about AI Day. Was there anything that, that piqued your interest there? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, the headline is the robot. I mean, we can get to FSD and stuff as well, but I think... People look at the robot and they think, you know, this isn't me, just me saying this. This has been repeated. But people look at the robot and they think, oh, it's not as good as robots that already exist. It's like you can look at Boston Dynamics and they do backflips and they can run and they, they, I don't know, they could probably bench press me or something ridiculous. But the Tesla bot just can pick up a box. But the fundamental difference is the Tesla bot doesn't have to be told explicitly what to do rather than the, the instructions can be more vague. You can say, Hey, get me, you know, the brown box and put it on the tallest shelf. And it can kind of figure out um, with its own vision, what to do, uh, how to do it safely and efficiently. And I think the way that they're going to roll it out makes sense starting in their own it factory. Can't, hold on, hold on, hold on. Go ahead. Before you mislead everybody on this show, you said it can do this. Can it do this or will it maybe one day be able to do this? Do what? Like pick up pick up a box? It can pick up a box. Like pick up a brown box, yeah. Yeah, that's why that's why I use can that. Can you tell it example. to pick up a brown Yeah, yeah that's why I use so that. It can? Like you can be like, yo. I don't know about voice commands. I'm not saying voice commands, but I just mean in general, it's able to be programmed to pick up a box and move it. Um, but that would be pretty neat. A little, cool. Cool. you know, robot in your house that you can say, vacuum my, vacuum my house, clean my car or whatever. That would be pretty amazing. And I feel like honestly, we'll get to a point. Self-driving where would be cool is, too. That would be cool. I think the robot is maybe even a bigger market because like if, if you have the robot, right, say bullish case scenario, and it's everything that Tesla dreams it to be and Tesla fanboys dream it to be, the demand for that is going to be like unlimited. Like it's just it's another worker pretty much, but cheaper than a human worker. So it, it's kind of crazy to even try to think about what that does. Do you think it's actually going to ever come out or work? Yeah. Well, I mean, or it's work on small. schedule like Elon Musk, uh, you know, has never hit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to factor in the Elon time for sure, but it's only been six months, yeah. and they've gone the from delay. they've gone from an idea to a, a functioning robot prototype, and they already have two different prototypes. So, I think give them another six months, and we'll see where they are. You know, iterate on that a couple more times, and uh, I don't know. I think their timeline was what three to five years. I think that's probably pretty bullish to have to be like feature complete and shipping out but maybe at that point i don't think it's unreasonable to think that it would be in a factory in a tesla factory providing some kind of useful labor elon has been living in texas with the rednecks for way too long because all of my <laughs> all of my redneck friends they tell me that things are 20 minutes away you're like oh how far is this concert away oh 20 minutes it's like 45 that, minutes away. You're like, oh, how far is this? Oh, it's 20 minute, 20 minute drive. No big deal. And it's an hour away. And 
I guess Elon's been hanging out with the Rednecks too long because everything is <laughs> one to two years away, and really it's four to five, yeah. or maybe never. Well, yeah. so, Connor, living in a Redneck area, I can tell you that we don't use GPSs, and so we kind of just base it off of how long it felt to us. And so usually, if, and if you're just driving, I don't know what Georgia looks like, but if you're just driving on a straight road for, you know, 20 miles or something, it just, it feels like 20 minutes and not, you know, 45 minutes or anything like that. So, you know, that's, from from a person that lives in redneck country, uh, that, that is that is my thought. I gotcha. I gotcha. No, no, no investing insight there. Just, you know. That's <laughs> funny. So, Zane, didn't you have this topic from last week that you wanted to bring up? Yes. Um, I don't really know what to take away from it other than maybe Robinhood isn't, you know, the devil company, as some people might think it is. I feel like it gets such bad press. Uh, but there's this interesting study, um, a guy named Christopher Schwartz. And kudos to this guy, and, and you'll see why in a minute. He wanted to find out how well brokers actually operate are you getting the prices that you want to trade for and they're looking for what's called price improvement so say you put in an order to buy one share at a dollar right what do you actually end up buying that share for um, well he wanted to figure that out so he used different brokers placed eighty-five thousand trades with his own money this is not a sponsored study and took <laughs> A huge L to the tune of $23,000. He lost $23,000 doing this, but uh, it's for science, for, for the investing community, I guess. So he found out that um, the best performer was TD Ameritrade, which I happen to use, um, and you get $0.08 cents of price performance there. And the worst performer, which is actually a broker that kind of touts their ability for for day traders um and for maybe like i don't know more high frequency traders um they, they want to be the best platform for execution on your trades they're actually the worst and this is interactive brokers they got about three cents of price improvements and other brokers were somewhere in between the two now interactive brokers has said these trades were too small we do better with bigger trades but Either way, I think this is pretty interesting that this guy took it upon himself to do all this research. And um, the other big takeaway is that payment for order flow that TD Ameritrade uses, and I believe um, Interactive Broker does not use, it actually didn't have the negative impact people think it does. And I fell into this camp for the longest time. I would tell you that as a as an ex-user of Robinhood, it felt like every time I placed a trade, even if it was a limit order and I was specifying the price, I was getting robbed and I was buying for way more or selling for way less than I wanted to. Uh, but it turns out maybe that was just you know a feeling I had or I was you know hearing too much media about uh, payment for order flow and it's actually not too bad in terms of your trading. But I feel like to now, us, this doesn't really matter because it's now, like... No, you're good. I was just going to say, I don't think it matters all that much for us. Like it's a cool study, but mostly probably geared toward day traders, people that actually care what brokerage they're using. Like I just have mine because I have no, I have no real reason, honestly, why I picked TD Ameritrade. Yeah. So I, I would be very curious about options. So options is where Robinhood makes a lot of their money. Um, they do in crypto as well, but the reason that they make a ton of their money in options. So my boss at work, he ran the 
options trading covered call strategy at Morgan Stanley for a number of years. And then he came over to my company. And so what he was telling me is he had a bunch of these interns that would come and work for Morgan Stanley and they would all have Robin hood and do options trading and whatnot. That's usually how they got introduced to options. And then they got an internship at Morgan Stanley. Uh, and, and he would have to inform them that the, that the money that they're spending to get these options is, uh, is a lot higher than what you can get placing a limit order at fidelity or something similar. And the reason for that is that Robin hood, like you'll put in a limit buy or a limit sell for the call option, or, you know, if you're putting in a spread or whatever you might be, be placing as an order and that just won't go through, like your limit order just won't go through and you'll just keep raising it and raising it and raising it. And finally, once you're like above the ask, finally that trade will go through. And if you go to fidelity, you'll get it two cents below the ask. And so I think that's maybe where some of that price gouging is. is I wouldn't even call it price gouging. I would just say maybe good business <laughs> knowing, knowing their audience. Robin hood is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, other, other Jamie? news this week, unless Jamie has something. Okay. Do you guys want to no, hear I got, about, I, the, I got nothing on this. Do you want to hear about the private investment that I made? Yes. Yeah. Let's hear Let's hear it. Zane. All right. So this is a company called Aptera. They make electric vehicles with solar on them. And the reason I couldn't resist is because I've been thinking like this is where electric vehicles should go for the longest time because it's super efficient. Um, they're, they're trying to produce this car in 2023 and start to ramp up. Um, I actually just saw news today that they're starting production of the solar cells that go on the cars. Um, but it looks super sleek. I, I invested basically the minimum investment of a thousand dollars. Um, and I don't know, we'll see what happens. They're planning to IPO in probably a, the coming year or year and a half or so. And at that point I'd probably take the exit hoping for a higher valuation, but it's such an interesting company. It's backed by, um, a lot of engineers like Sandy Monroe for people who might know him. Um, so I felt pretty good about having him back in the company. I like the mission. I understand that it's a super risky investment. Um, but I was also just kind of excited to get into a private company in some form because that's kind of off limits, uh, for a lot of investors. Do you know what the lockup period is? I don't know about the lockup period. Um, are you talking about in terms of my shares? Yeah. Like, is it liquid? No, it's not, it's not liquid. So I have to wait for, an IPO or an acquisition, or they go bankrupt. So it's, I, I know it's kind of a risky play, uh, but I just wanted to throw some money at it. And I like the mission. I, I, th I think it's better go well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what time is the interview Zane with uh, Aptera's CEO? 10 on Friday. So I don't know exactly who it's going to be. My, I, I'm thinking it's one of the founders uh, and co-CEOs either Steve Fambro or Chris Anthony. Um, but there's a ton of interviews out there. Like if you guys are interested in the company, you can learn so much about it in a couple hours online because they're, they're really active with interviews. Their website's pretty informational and stuff like that. And, and of course, one of those places will be intern investing because Zane is going to be interviewing, um, some, one of the management, uh, teams. So yeah, <laughs> I, I like the uh, m moving back to Aptera. I, I like the idea. The question, 
the question that I have from an investment perspective is, okay, obviously the, uh, you know, the, the people that are way into electric vehicles and way into solar, cough, cough, sane, um, are, are, are going to love this and chew this up. And there's going to be uh, lots of early adopters. But the question for me is scale. Like uh, th- there are enough consumers out there that are that aren't even willing to get like an electric vehicle yet because of how hard it is, you know, to to charge the vehicle, um, or, or you know how how many consumers are willing to get solar because they don't want to have that installed on the roof, or because there are so many other barriers to entry for whatever reason. So is there how long would it take for the broad? Um, you know, population, at least in the United States, I don't know Aptera's, uh, you know, core competency, core market, um, but, you know, assuming it's United States, how long f- would it be for for both solar and then EVs and then the combination of the two to actually see broad scale? Is it yeah. 20 years? Is it 30 years? 40? I don't know. Yeah, I, I kind of share the concern, but also in looking into the company, I think they actually solve a ton of those problems and are going to help actually accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles. And I'll tell you why. So integrating solar onto the vehicle means you're less reliant on charging stations, right? You can sit, you know, even, um, you know, up in the Northeast, right? If you have a fully decked out uh, solar option, you can charge 20, 30, up to 40 miles a day in solar just for sitting there. Like you're not plugged in, right? And the average driver in the U.S. drives less than that every day. So you almost don't have to plug in this car unless you want to go on a road trip. So I think that's pretty useful. Also, it's so efficient that they're going to have one. They need a very small battery. There's only 10 parts, I think, roughly to the entire uh, build. And so it's going to be easy to assemble and they're using like micro factories. So I think it'll be easier to start scaling up production a bit. Um, but yeah, getting back to the efficiency, they're going to have an, a thousand, uh, a version of the car that can drive 1000 miles on a single charge because it's so efficient. So it's taking away range anxiety, which is one of the biggest problems, uh, facing EVs. It's also, since it's so efficient, it has a smaller battery, taking away a lot of the stress on the grid that is associated with big EVs and with big batteries and, that's kind of the way the market's been going. Like the the Mustang Mach E, the Tesla SUVs, um, now the EV pickup truck pickup truck race is taking off. Uh, but the spot for a three wheeled efficient vehicle that can still carry cargo and two passengers, I think it's really cool. And they have I think a billion dollars in pre orders right now. Um, and I mean, it's not a cheap valuation. Oh. I think. Yeah, I think it's like 30,000. What is the valuation? I think what I got in at, I think 850 million, roughly. It could be more, could be less. Um, but they've been doing a lot of raises. They've had um, the most recent one is just this, this crowdfunding raise. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where that goes. And again, it's, it's kind of a um, high valuation, in my opinion. There's a lot of risk involved. There's only a billion dollars in pre-orders. It seems like a lot, but when you look at other EV startups, I think they, they easily have more like uh, like Lucid, for example, um, and, and some other models by uh, other companies. Zane, you, you said you said a billion in pre-orders. Does that mean they're pre-revenue? 
or you know pre pre production getting them on the road? Yeah, pre production. So they're okay. working through their prototypes. They just released their gamma prototype, and they're working to what will be called their delta prototype, which is their like production ready model. And I think they're almost there. They're trying to scale in 2023 and start producing. They have a factory. They've started solar cell production. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And so what comes with the investment as well is a free, well, not free, but a $100 coupon off your reservation. So now not only am I an investor, but I've reserved wow, so my spot in line for, uh, for an Aptera <laughs> in like 2024 or whatever. That's so sick. Wow. Congratulations. Well, so, hey, Aptera might be expensive at $850 million in no revenue, but at least it's not as bad as when Rivian came public at something, what, like, what was it, <laughs> yeah. like $100 billion in no revenue yeah. or something like that? So, you know, expensive, I, but you like, know, maybe the, maybe they'll be the next $100 billion pre-revenue company. Who knows? Yeah. Like, Jamie, I'm not the most, you know, I don't have the highest conviction on things like this, but when the Rivian IPO popped off like that, I was like, this is so obviously overvalued and unsustainable. Like, that was the one I was well, just Well, they basically taught the out. market, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they, they those those market. are those are one of the market top like signals. Uh, that was pre pre revenue uh, EV company that hadn't made a sale yet, coming in at a hundred billion dollars or however much it was. Uh, it was somewhere around a hundred billion, right? Yeah, it was it was eighty yeah. billion, I think, and then the first day yeah. of trading, it got up to a hundred. Yeah, but that was that was insane. We did a video looking <laughs> over their S one. Uh, that was our first like cringe. Um, thumbnail that we did i think was was that rivian video but i'm so far i remember looking at the yeah at the, at the s1 you know we're right right where we started um but it was like a 10 trillion dollar market opportunity or something like that and i'm like where are you where are you getting these numbers but they just you you don't no one has to fact check any tam numbers so you can That's literally what... throw out whatever you want that's what bugs me so much about TAM. Like, I, I use it, especially in SaaS, to get some sort of gauge as to how big the market is. I'm not – like, if I see a $50 billion TAM, I'm not saying, okay, it's in stone. I'm just saying, okay, you know, it's big. But if you're if you're Rivian and you're saying a $10 trillion opportunity or you're Uber, I think it was, and in Uber's S1, they said it's something equally as ridiculous, like like every, every single car in the world or something like that. That is such crap. I, I, I'm not a huge fan. Every possible use of transportation is in their TAM. It's Planes, so taxis, everything. Your, Uber is not going to get into the plane industry. That is so insane. Like, and so... I like TAM for a broad measure of how big a market is, but when companies just go absolutely berserk, that pisses me off. It it like it, it makes me bearish. That is a red flag in my head. You know what's interesting about Aptera is, and I was thinking about this. This is a couple weeks ago. I was talking to a, to one of my friend's dads, and he invests in a. He's an angel investor in a bunch of these small companies, and he just started doing this. Um, and what's really interesting is at the levels, at the valuations that he's purchasing small chunks of, of all these different companies, you don't have to always find a good company to invest in. Sometimes you have to, sometimes you can literally buy a company 
with a great storyteller that you're like, okay, this guy can sell. The next guy is going to be able to, next guy is going to buy these shares off me for more than I bought them for. And so when you're buying at those valuations that early in the game, you don't always have to find the best companies, which is what's so fascinating. It's like a totally different world than what we're doing in the public markets. The game, the game in venture capital, like obviously there are some VC players that are looking to like own the company throughout its IPO. But when it comes to VC, the end game is the IPO. That's when VCs sell out. So they don't care about, you know, this whatever company they're investing in being, you know, the next other company. They just want the company to have a good story so their valuation can rise and they can have a successful IPO. That's the end game for VCs. Whereas for investors, you know, we're, we, we don't care about the next, you know, five years or them getting to another, you know, funding round. We, we're focused on, you know, or as a long-term investors are focused on the next decade and then becoming, uh, you know, that next big player. So it's, it's really interesting and working on a marketing team and working, uh, you know, at, at a, small startup that is attracting VCs. It's really interesting to see that dynamic or as an intern at one of those places, I don't work there anymore, but um, it's really interesting to watch that and see how um, that operates. It's wicked cool. Looking forward to that Linguado IPO. Yeah. L-I-N-G on the New York Stock Exchange, according to Mr. Alexander Kaplan. Let's go. I, um, I, I wonder... Well, I think I would have been interested in investing in Aptera until you said $850 million because at that stage in the game, I would be looking for a 100x or a zero, and the 100x seems a lot less likely at $850 million valuation than it would have at, you know, $100 million, you know? Yeah, I'm not expecting All it would have to do is literally value. become the next Rivian. Yeah, but you're selling Saying vehicles. If you wanted a match for your money, just to light it all on fire, I could have done that for you. <laughs> oh, all right. Next you're time living we'll... in 2021 still. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You know what? I'll probably look back and I can either have the best I told you so moment or um, I'll, be, I'll be laughing at myself. We'll see. But I, I like the story. Either we'll I'm never kidding. hear about it. <laughs> yeah, I just I'll never bring it up again. Well, that's cool. That's uh, wh where do you even keep those shares? How does that even work? Yeah, so I mean, it's not on like a brokerage or exchange. So I think the way it works is in the event of like an acquisition or IPO, you're getting paid out um, for the shares that you own. But until then, like you, you can't do anything with them. They're just on the they're on the books basically uh, for Aptera and you hope. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds a little sketchy. I'm not, I'm not sure if I trust the, Oh, they're just on the books. No, thanks. I'm, I'm taking a risk. That's I'm funny though. <laughs> yeah, no, I like it. I like it. I, um, if I was more into that stuff, I think I would definitely consider something like that, especially as an acquisition target too. Like I look at something that's, that I'm more interested in, like uh, ag tech companies. John Deere just acquires ag tech companies like crazy for, you know, uh, well, I mean, they did buy a self-driving tractor company for, I think, $250 million. 
which is significantly less than Aptera. And this was, I don't know, two years ago. So, yeah. I mean, I think well, something like that at a smaller it? valuation would be interesting to me. Like, who's going to buy Aptera? That's the reason my thesis is. I would not be surprised if Tesla idea. bought it out. How does it, I can see how maybe that would fit into like a future robo taxi network or something, but it's it's so far removed from their current product line. You know, like where does this fit into any automaker's product line? It seems pretty tough. Zane, to be fair, I I agree, but where does a robot fit into Tesla's <laughs> product line in the EV space? I mean, you, you got me there. They're, they're not necessarily known for sticking to their core competencies. <laughs> you know what? You're right. You got me there. We'll see. I mean, I, I don't know. I wouldn't completely rule it out, but I'm I'm thinking like. 80, 20, uh, like 80%, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be an IPO exit, um, 20% acquisition. Um, I should probably throw a bankruptcy somewhere in that mix just to be, you know, cautious, but I don't know where that is. Well, Zane, you want to close us out? Yeah, that, uh, that's a good way to wrap it up for today. Got a lot of topics in. Um, if you're interested in more from us at Intern Investing, check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Also, like and subscribe to the channel if you're interested in seeing our portfolio reviews or portfolio reveals at uh, 1,000 subscribers. So that would really help us out as well. Uh, I think that does it for us here at Intern Investing, and we'll see you in the next one.